Welcome to the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. This podcast features recordings of academic papers on the history of medicine and medical humanities, which were given to audiences in University College Dublin as part of the Centre Seminar Series. For more information on the series and all Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland activities, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash body dot htm or simply do a search for CHOMI UCD in Google. This episode features Professor Jimmy Kelly of St. Patrick's College, Drumcondra. Professor Kelly has published on 18th century Irish legislature, Poor Relief, and was co-editor of the collection Ireland and Medicine in the 17th and 18th centuries, which was published by Ashgate in January 2010. His paper, I Was Right Glad to Be Rid of It, Dental Medical Practice in 18th Century Ireland, was given on September 30th, 2010 in University College Dublin. Now medical history in Ireland and elsewhere has long sustained an approach that conceived of the development of the hospital and the emergence of the modern trinity of medical specialists, that is the consultant, the surgeon and the general practitioner, in the words of William Doolan, as a story of progress and triumph. Dentistry has not afforded a prominent place in this grand narrative, but the interpretation imposed upon its history is no less whiggish as it offers an equivalent narrative of progress from an era of amateur tooth pullers and surgeon operators for the teeth, uh, as it was described at the time, to the modern dentist. The reality was more complex, particularly for the formative era of the late 17th, 18th and early 19th centuries, when the foundations of modern medicine were laid, since in Ireland, as in England, where there was, to quote Roy Porter, no single privileged medicine because many types of healing coexisted, overlapping and clamouring for the public ear. This notwithstanding, the history of dental care in Ireland is particularly opaque because there is no historiography and only a shallow evidential footprint. But the utilisation from the 1770s of the term dentist to define those who specialised in this area indicates that the 18th century was a formative period, though the reality for those in pain or requiring treatment was palpably less encouraging than this qualified positive judgment implies. Based on what can be recovered, it is clear that dentistry in Ireland in the early modern period was not the exclusive preserve of the surgeon members of the Guild of Barbers, Surgeons, Apothecaries and Peruke Makers, the Guild of St Mary Magdalene, in whom it was vested by charter in 1577. This is not to suggest that the Guild's efforts to enforce its legal monopoly into the 18th century was entirely in vain. Some of the most eminent operators for the teeth practising in Dublin during the first half of the century were prominent members, but the frequency with which that body asserted that that only those it licensed were entitled to practice is evidence of its increasing inability to control entry. Matters had always been thus outside the metropolitan area where surgeons with the requisite skills were seldom available and the local tooth puller was the only recourse of the needy. But the ebbing of the Guild's authority in the 18th century and its failure even to attempt to enforce specific standards of treatment and care meant not only that empirics and regular practitioners, but also surgeon operators for the teeth, chose increasingly to function outside its structures. It would be an exaggeration to say that this resulted in a medical free-for-all, though regulation was palpably uh, deficient, and the boundaries between the trained practitioner, the skillful empiric, and the charlatan were shifting and indistinct. Moreover, dental medicine was not unchanging. It may be presumptuous, based on the adoption from the French dentiste of the Appalachian dentist in place of operator for the teeth to describe specialist dental practitioners to conclude that the 18th century witnessed the emergence of dentistry as a distinct medical speciality in Ireland, but it did travel some distance along that road. 
In this initial attempt to map the contours of dental medical practice during that period, there is much that remains elusive. However, it can be established that in Ireland, as in other jurisdictions in Western Europe, the 18th century witnessed an epidemic of tooth decay that encouraged a small number of surgeons to specialise in dental care. The emergence of a market for dentifrice and other tooth cleansing agents and a greater openness to the promotion of dental care in print. Saliently, dental practice in Ireland followed the English rather than the more sophisticated French model with the result that the standard of care available was rudimentary and obliged to compete in a competitive commercial medical marketplace that was as likely to indulge the charlatan who promised a miracle cure as it was to support the honest operator who did his best with the knowledge and techniques he had at his disposal. Be that as it may, the century generated a greater awareness of the potential of dental medicine and the merits of the dentist over the tooth puller that was of enduring consequence. The presence of teeth alongside the more expected conditions of consumption, smallpox and fever on the bills of mortality in Dublin City prepared in the first half of the 18th century is a pointer as to why dental welfare featured prominently in the calculations of contemporaries. Teeth, that's just on the, just see the bills of mortality, it just says teeth. Uh, teeth did not rival the major contagions, consumption, fever, smallpox, as a primary cause of mortality, responsibly for, responsive, respectively for 15, 22 and 23% of the consolidated Dublin Bill of Mortality for 1712 to 18, but a significant 6.8% of deaths and 1,022 people in all were recorded, uh, were, was ascribed uh, to dental origin in those, in those years. The importance of dental morbidity as a cause of mortality is somewhat but before the, uh, the late 1730s, but returns of 5%, 119 people in the mid-1730s, 3.6% or 68 people in the late 1730s, suggests it remained one of the main identifi- identifiable causes of mortality. This seems quite shocking in some senses, but I mean, we take evidence as we see it to a certain extent. Death, of course, was the worst-case outcome of dental morbidity, whose major symptom was pain. 18th century medical operators for the teeth in Ireland and Britain aspired to ease dental pain by extraction, which is why contemporaries were resigned to tooth loss. Bishop Singh of Elphin made this clear in his correspondence with his daughter, writing in May 1751, quote, of the loss of the remaining tooth in my upper jaw, end of quote, he observed easily, and I quote, I was right glad to be rid of it. It plagued me both in speaking and eating. He was equally philosophical some months later when his daughter anticipated losing a tooth. Quote, I know by sad experience of what consequence it is to preserve teeth, and I fear yours will decay as good as your mother, as your mother's did, as, and mine have done. End of quote. Singh was approach, approaching his 60th birthday when he made this observation, so it's not entirely surprising that he received the loss of a tooth that he was wont to compare to a bad tenant with such equanimity. His daughter, by contrast, was only 18. When she experienced troubling dental pain, and he was quite so resigned to her loss of teeth. Uh, <clears throat> the point is that the loss of teeth, I will conclude, was a not unusual. Commenting on the fact that she had, and I quote, so many more bad ones, two of which were already condemned, he counselled her, and I quote again, cheerfully to submit to the loss of two teeth and to take better care of what remained. In offering this guidance, Singh reflected the prevailing ignorance, even among the well-educated, in respect to dental matters. 
This is borne out by his earlier advice to his daughter to inquire of a governess, quote, whether she be acquainted with this phrase, dense disagues, some wisdom teeth. I know the meaning, but have you any of that kind? Singh's attentiveness to his daughter's dental health reflected the genuine concern one family member showed another who was in, pain, who was in such pain, quote, she could not eat, though hungry. Bishop St. George Ash of Clogher expressed similar emotion in April 1701 when his wife was, again, quotation, in a most grievous distress, distress with a, more, a violent toothache and swelling in her face. His solution was prayers, which was probably as useful as the, quote, resolution and patience, end of quote, for which Alicia Singh was commended by her governess a half century later. Some like Catherine Peacock of County Limerick opted in the late 1740s for the more orthodox but doubtful therapies of bleeding or lancing the gums. A more commonly resorted to palliative, deriving from the strong tradition of popular medicine, was one of the different commodities from the realm of food, alcohol and narcotics that possessed or were perceived to possess analgesic qualities. The usefulness of such compounds depended largely on the patient's perception of their effectiveness, but since recourse to them was essentially a matter of judgment and they were generally self-administered, their employment was in keeping with the practice of said medication that was a prominent feature of contemporary medical, practice, medical culture. Bishop, Swing, Bishop Singh swore by the combination of, quote, toasted figs to the swelled gums and syrup of onions to the ear when he experienced dental problems. The former never failed to break the swelling, nor the latter to lessen the pain, he cancelled. Bishop William Nicholson of Derry vouched for the analgesic qualities of chewing the root of pelletry of Spain, of Spain covered with leaf tobacco when he was grievously tortured with a toothache in 1719. Others resorted to the application of poultices or the consumption of brandy or tobacco to achieve the same result, though the social convention that deemed the latter two, just in case you've forgotten, brandy or tobacco, not very decorous for a young damsel, it discouraged their use and the use later of the opiate laudanum. Given the proliferation of patent and proprietary medicines that were heavily advertised in the 18th century, it was inevitable not only that remedies for the toothache and other dental products featured prominently in the inventories of retailers of commercial medicine, but also that such, that such medications were commonly appealed to. Since most were as ineffectual as Max Anodyne fluid, which, provided, which proved of no assistance to the English diarist Silas Neville, or Hungry Water, H-O-N-G-A-R-Y, which was imbibed with the equal lack of impact by Catherine Peacock in 1749, a majority of sufferers soon determined on extraction. Some even attempted to perform the procedure themselves, though none followed, at least to my knowledge, the example of the eccentric English physician, he was a physician, messenger Monsey, who extracted a painful tooth with a combination of catgut and a pistol. I'll leave it to work out yourself to work out how. Though it could be as hazardous to trust the local tooth puller. Catherine Peacock, for example, long held uh, <clears throat> vivid memories of the racking pain caused by a botched extraction performed in 1747 by Cyprian Purcell, a local jack of all trades. The Reverend William French of French Park County Roscommon, who ministered in the Diocese of Elphin, held a still more excru- had a still more excruciating experience in 1751 when, having ventured to a tooth oper- operator to deal with a, quote, a violent toothache, he was obliged to endure great pain and swelling when the person in which he invested his trust, quote, pulled out a sound tooth instead of the diseased one, and then, in attempting to pull this out too, tore his jaw from his cheek. Significantly, medical negligence of this magnitude did not swear off Peacock or Parson James Woodford, who endured an experience comparable to that of William French, because 
the Muslim times no alternative. Both resorted to their local tooth pullers when further extractions were required, though it is noteworthy that Cassie Peacock, Peacock declined to let Cyprian Purcell draw her tooth in 1749 when she required a further attention. Such caution is, comparable, is comprehensible because some patients, as revealed by the example of William Bull, an attorney and agent based in Dublin, whose death in 1766 was, quote, occasioned by the drawing of a tooth, end of quote, did not recover from the injuries it received. It's not apparent precisely what happened in this instance, but the avoidance of serious injury was an important consideration in persuading those requiring dental assistance to seek out, quote, the best tooth drawer available and to pay accordingly. Patients were certainly disposed to go to great lengths to locate the best practitioner by, quote, the hazardous reputation of of pre-modern surgery and having informed themselves of the respective merits of those available, to opt for the person who was, quote, safe and skillful and not rash. They were prompted to do so also by the appreciating belief in a culture of curing, encouraged by the confident claims of the advocates of diagnostic medicine, as well as by the evidently self-interested claims of the purveyors of patent and proprietary cure-alls. In this respect, Ireland was comparable eh, to pre-modern England. The marketing of medicine for every recognised illness, including those of a dental character, was central to the emergence of a consumer society in 18th century Ireland. Yet paradoxically, the increased demand for dental intervention was itself a negative consequence of the growth in consumption, and specifically of the sharp rise in the consumption of sugar, chocolate, coffee and refined white flour, since this was one of the primary causes of a virtual epidemic of tooth decay in the 17th and 18th centuries. This might not have been so serious a problem if the increase in income of which increased sugar, coffee and white flour consumption and tooth decay were both the manifestation was matched by the capacity of the existing medical infrastructure to provide preventative interventionist medical solutions and had, quote, craft and oral transmission not predominated over formal and organised learning in medicine. But this was not the case. In Ireland, as in Britain, the provision of dental care, which in practice prioritised extraction over restoration, was assumed primarily by journeyman surgeons and by tooth pullers with the nerve, skill and basic instruments required to perform the function. Had the provisions of the Charter of the Guild of St. Magdalene, which stipulated that no person shall, shall or may exercise any of the several arts and mysteries of surgeons unless admitted first free of the said corporation, and a quote, being enforced, this task would have been performed only by surgeons who had completed a recognised apprenticeship. But the combination of the weakness of the guild and the implications of the so-called Quack's Charter, which had been approved at Westminster in 1542, which stated that, quote, any person with knowledge, end of quote, was at liberty, quote again, to practice, use, and minister in and to any outward sore, wound, swelling, or disease, ensured that unsworn practitioners uh, were commonplace. The Guild sought repeatedly in the early decades of the 18th century to inhibit this by sanctioning a penalty of £5 per month on unlicensed practitioners, but they were but they were powerless, in effect, to enforce their local monopoly and could do little other than acknowledge despairingly that their members were, quote, much imposed upon by the foreigners, doesn't mean people naturally, but members, and intruders who take upon them to practice without qualifying uh, according to the rules of the Guild. 
The corporation did occasionally prosecute unregistered surgeon practitioners, but it was already too late to redeem the reputation of the Guild, which was described unkindly, perhaps, but described nonetheless in 1703 as, a, and I quote, a refuge for empirics, impudent quacks, women and other idle persons from other trades who perpetrated gross errors and barbarous and inhuman practice. Some surgeons conceived that they could better maintain their reputations by establishing a separate organisation that would encourage, quote, the true professors of surgery, but Parliament was uninterested. We should not think for the reputation either of surgeons in general and still less for those who specialised in dental treatment. Bishop Singh, as usual, captured the reality of the situation when he observed in 1752 that, quote, the best surgeons are not the best tooth drawers and that others who required... The elusive, quote, knack by practice, Singh's term, had usurped them in public estimation. Now, matters need not have developed in this way had both the Irish Parliament and the Guild of Mary Magdalene taken a more direct and interventionist interest in medical regulation. Both were guided in, <coughs> in their inactivity by the disinterest of the Westminster uh, legislature when the most, uh, when the more, and the Irish legislature, indeed, when they might more profitably have looked uh, to France where more progressive attitudes had brought about the separation of dentistry and surgery and the emergence of the former as a distinct branch of medicine by the beginning of the 18th century. Indicatively, indicatively, French dentists were the first in Europe to to discourage extraction and to promote the use of toothbrushes. And the advanced character of of dental welfare, uh, of the dental dental welfare they practiced and promoted, is attested by the multitude of books on dentistry published by a great variety of individuals. The most influential was Pierre Fauchard, died in 1761, the so-called father of modern dentistry, who celebrated uh, study Les Surgeon Dentiste, or Traité des Dentes, published in 1728, gave the word dentist uh, to the world. Fauchard's surgeon dentiste was a milestone in the development of dentistry. This was acknowledged by the publication of a German translation in 1733 and a revised and expanded second edition in Paris in 1746. A further French edition followed in 1786, but no English or Irish edition is recorded. This does not mean that Fauchard's work was unknown in these kingdoms. Edward Worth, the early 18th century doctor and book collector, secured a copy for the fine library of scientific and medical books he bequeathed to St. Patrick Dunn's Hospital in 1733, and you can actually examine a mint copy uh, there. Yet the emphasis attached to drawing in the British Isles, when compared with the attention <coughs> Fauchard, Bourdet, and other French specialists afforded restoring decayed teeth and advanced techniques, indicated, indicates that its impact was modest and suggests that Colin Jones' recent assessment that, quote, in matters dental, the English were way behind the French, end of quote, was true also of, uh, of Ireland. This need not have been the case, since there was an identifiable interest in Ireland in improving dental care dating back to the 1680s. The earliest known attempt to respond was by one Charles Allen, who tracked the operator for the teeth, showing how to preserve the teeth and gums from all accidents they are subject to, was published in Dublin, remarkably, in 1786 and again, sorry, in 1686 and again in 1687. Since Allen was English... Yorkshire, I believe, his presence in Dublin suggests that he was an itinerant dental practitioner and that he used the tract to attract attention. 
It is not apparent how skilful a practitioner he was or of the level of demand for his services in Ireland, but the attention he afforded the care of teeth and gums, the causes of tooth decay, toothache, teething in children, and the proper use of the dental pelican in his pamphlet suggests that he cannot be dismissed simply as a quack, interested merely in making money. That said, his perturbing advice to parents that teething in children might be facilitated by making a cross incision with a lancer or very sharp penknife in the gums at the point where the new tooth would emerge was hardly mitigated by his recipe for an exotic pain-easing wash made from figs boiled in whey, plantain water, honey of roses and syrup of violets, which one suggests might actually have worked a little bit or at least have, been, have some qualities to it. Alan, it can safely be assumed, followed the practice of most itinerant medical practitioners and moved on once he had exhausted the financial opportunity he identified in Ireland. However, Dublin was a fast-growing city in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, and because a majority of its residents possessed English ancestry and were disposed to look to England for solutions to the dental problems... Sorry, they were disposed to look to England for solutions to their dental and medical, uh, medical and dental problems... The range of services available was limited, but it is noteworthy that by the early 18th century, the heavy emphasis, a heavy emphasis was placed on prosthetics, since it was the development of the late 17th century by, quote, highly skilled and entrepreneurial master goldsmiths, watchmakers, and ivory turners of artificial teeth that prompted, quote, a socially and cosmetically driven demand for such products. In dental terms, this means dentures. And it is notable that one could, in 1707, purchase a set of, quote, artificial teeth that it was promised were put in so neatly they were impossible to tell from natural ones. Dental discoloration was another priority. Teeth that had become, quote, black and ill-coloured could be cleaned and polished with uh, cosmetic materials that were available for purchase. Dentures and dental discoloration remained abiding concerns with the self-conscious citizenry of Dublin, but since the health implications of dental neglect were broader, this presented opportunities for ambitious dental practitioners who were more skilled than the ordinary tooth pullers. The The first to rise to the challenge was Samuel Steele, one of whose advertisements is included in the handout, who was, quote, a licensed surgeon and operator for the teeth, who commenced... Uh, who commenced practice at the beginning of the 18th century and who was based at, quote, the sign of the surgeon and tooth drawer uh, on Dublin's Essex Bridge when he commenced advertising his services in 1715. He indicated then that as well as cleaning, quote, black teeth, thought as horrendous, and filling dentures useful to eat with uh, that could be worn several years and kept in overnight, he could extract teeth or stumps of teeth and ease toothache. Still more... Significantly, since this highlights that even reputable practitioners were influenced by the sales methods of irregulars, he anticipated the culture of commercial medicine that grew dramatically in the 1720s by, by retailing two tooth medications. These are a tooth powder that cleanses, scours, and makes white the foulest teeth, and countered bad breath of dental origin, and an antiscorbutic opiate which, as well as defeating most distempers of the teeth, fortified gums against defluxions, which is the cause that loosens the teeth. Significantly, the latter he recommended should be applied once a week with a toothbrush. Steele was an innovative surgeon, alert to new ideas and approaches, which was crucial to his long-term success in the competitive commercial environment then emerging. 
you certainly appreciated the potential of advertising and of the value of hyperbolic language, or the value of the hyperbolic language of quackery, since these were the means by which from 1723 he informed the public of his capacity to ease toothache without drawing and made prospective clients aware that if they brushed with this excellent dentifrice, which is the safest and of the best composition twice a week, they must not only rid themselves of bad breath, but also fasten loose teeth. He also pioneered, quote, a superior new method of his own invention, the details of which he kept secret, which is a characteristic uh, action at the time, of tying dentures in place, instead of his former method of tying them with a silk string. This meant that dentures lasting several years, claimed, could be put into the mouth and taken out again in less than half a minute. Now, Steele exaggerated, inevitably, the convenience of his dentures, but his marketing was sufficiently effective to enable him to prevail over his competitors. This is most obvious in the case of his dentifrice, in which he maintained he encountered a number of pretenders to this art who were, quote, wholly ignorant of the practice of dentistry. Whether this was true or not, Steele demonstrated a skill at attracting notice to the dental service he provided by pioneering the practice in Ireland of illustrating his advertisements with appropriate woodcuts. His initial venture in this direction in 1725 features a patient sitting on the ground having a tooth extracted. That's the first illustration. So if you look at the first one in your, in the, in the, of the three. That's assuming, of course, that this reflected Steele's method of working. It suggests that he employed a variation of the technique popular, popularized by Fauchard, which was to sit patients on a on a chair in place of the traditional stance in which the patient and the practitioner sat on the floor with the patient's head between the latter's legs. Seems highly undignified, actually. Well, there you go. Subsequently, in response to the adoption by a competitor in 1729 of a comparable image of a man holding an aching jaw, Steele opted, opted for the graphic symbol of a molar tooth in all his advertisements, and it's carried in pretty much in all newspapers over a period of several years. That's figure two in your, uh, in the, in the, of the three that I've provided. Now, though Steele used print to market his services in a manner directly comparable to the most skilled retailers of commercial medicine and quack doctors, which, by the way, correlates with what Jones has observed is happening also in contemporary Paris, Steele was himself a respectable member of the Guild of Barbers and Surgeons, having served as warden in 1707 and 1708, and remained sufficiently active in the organization in the interval to stand as candidate for the, in the contest for the mastership in 1729. The fact that Steele registered only four votes out of a total of 61 on that latter occasion, but in a three-corner con- contest, attests, I suggest, that's a new suggestion, uh, <clears throat> to the modest size of the dental interest in the Guild rather than to his unpopularity. But the increased availability of dental hygiene products for sale highlighted that, highlight that it was already a well-established feature of the growing world of commercial medicine. This was symbolically affirmed in 1728 when John Odewan, a surgeon who was hanged in that year for the murder of his maid servant, a cause celeb in the city at the time, included his recipe to, quote, make teeth white in a farewell publication of his, quote, choice receipts in physic and surgery for the cure of diseases. Interesting way to go. Uh, however, it was demonstrated in a more practical manner by the inclusion by Richard Dixon, the most successful retailer of proprietary medicine in Ireland for several decades, beginning in the mid-1720s, of a, quote, specific tincture, an antiscorbutic powder for the teeth, a dental powder, and an unspecified remedy for toothache on the expanding list of nostrums that he offered for sale. And his claim that his specific tincture and powder assisted with all aspects of dental hygiene. 
From the early 1730s, Dixon provided his customers with printed directions on how to get the best from products such as the tincture for the teeth, powder for the teeth, and paste for the toothache, which he retailed as stock items. Moreover, he keenly followed changes in public taste, for when Thomas Greenock when Thomas Greenock celebrated tinctures, uh, which received a royal patent in 1743, emerged as the most popular tooth preservative and cure for toothache, it was added to the extensive list of medications that he retailed. By the early 1750s, Greenock's tinctures were firmly established as market leader. The dominance of the retailers of commercial medicine, of the market for proprietary medicine, obliged dental practitioners to concentrate on the surgical um, and prosthetic aspects of dental health. They did not cease selling dentifrice, but based on those who can be identified, the most striking feature of this branch of medical activity is the small number of surgeons and operators of the teeth who were active at any given time. Samuel Steele's main competitors during his lifetime were, were William Breach, who was master of the Guild of Barbers and Surgeons uh, for a brief time, and Thomas Osborne, who served his apprenticeship with Breach, who was an active Guild member for 20 years from 1714. Another apprentice to, of Breach to make it good was Thomas Allen, who was one of whose ad- advertisements is also included in the, little, it's the third of the handout. He was less active in the guild, but his distinctive advertisements included an arresting image of a man holding his jaw. All had to compete with itinerant operators from England, such as J. Plain from London, who applied for business from Temple Bar in the early 1730s. Significantly, these offered little that was not available from the most high-profile Irish practitioners, and it appears, based on the fact that Samuel Steele remained the preference of the social elite, that dental practice evolved but slowly. With the passing of Samuel Steele and Thomas Allen, a new generation of operators for the teeth emerged in the late 1740s and 1750s. Michael Osborne, who was not a licensed surgeon, succeeded to Allen's practice, but though he claimed he possessed the same capacity to draw teeth and to ease toothache without pain or drawing teeth, the extension of a public invitation to Charles Williams, a surgeon, a tooth operator from London, to succeed Steele suggests that there was far from universal contentment by that date at the standard of care that was available. Williams boasted that he was ensconced in the... Sorry, Williams boasted when he was ensconced in the city that he had, quote, the honour of being employed by some of the nobility and gentry. And it's clear from his avowal that he would, quote, attend any either in city or county who were pleased to favour him with their commands that he courted upper-class custom. He also contrived to win public confidence by promising, as Alam had done previously, to remove, quote, any tooth or stump, however difficult, with the greatest ease, safety and expedition, and that he could do so safely because he used, quote, an instrument of late invention that is not possible the jaw can be injured by it. Typically, Williams did not reveal the specifications of this instrument, but such vagueness did not inhibit him acquiring a reputation as, quote, the best tooth drawer in Dublin by the early 1750s. Recommended by Robert French, the Justice of the Court of Common Pleas, uh, to Bishop uh, Singh, who had no opinion of Samuel Steele, interestingly, Singh advised his daughter Alicia to attend Williams in the belief that, quote, he may be useful to you both both in drawing the teeth you must lose and preserving the rest. 
Based on such testimonials, it is apparent that Williams deserved his reputation as, quote, a famous operator for teeth, and he contrived to maintain it by publicizing that he employed the most up-to-date methods. He also retailed dental uh, products. He advertised an, an elixir for the teeth for sale in 1747. That is, the advertisement rang, ran, a certain preservative against decay and rottenness cures the scurvy in the gums, and in a short time will make, te- make the teeth as white as ivory. This was sheer hyperbole, but it is indicative of the fact that what attracted customers and paying clients was not always soundly based. This is exemplified, perhaps, by William's advice to patients not to use toothbrushes. He, he supported, is against brushes, and the use of anything hard or gritty recommends a sponge and a linkstus which cleans with a kind of lather without freshing the gums. This advice was accepted as entirely reasonable, and it is significant that though it contradicted that previously given by Samuel Steele, it was not inconsistent with Fauchard's recommendation that gums and teeth could be treated with a sponge dipped in water fortified with aqua vita and a special paste. Saliently, it does not appear that Williams was guided by Fauchard's treatise, since he acquired the recipe for the paste he retailed from his college green address from a lesser Italian practitioner, a Dr. Giovanni. Indeed, Williams subsequently published a translation of Giovanni's treatise on the disorders of the teeth and gums with directions for using the liquid paste. I mean, it was a puff piece uh, rather than a series treatise. While Williams may have been prompted to publish Giovanni's tract by his belief in the medical or the medicinal efficacy of the paste, it is still more notable that he had recourse to a pamphlet to promote the commodity, since this print form was employed at this time as a sales medium by the advocates of therapies as diverse as bathing and proprietary medicine. The owners of the baths, Dr. Ahmed, the great, one of the greatest fraudsters of the age, actually used precisely the same medium uh, to uh, sell the virtues of, of the bathing uh, system he, or the bathing institution he'd established in Tara Street. His recourse, to the sale, his recourse to the sales techniques favored by the more aggressive retailers of private medicine to dentistry attests to the continuing closeness of the links between, our, between Irish operators for the teeth and the world of commercial medicine. The fact that he, that is Williams, chose to market a, a dental medication of continental origin is another indicator. The overwhelming majority, though, of the patent and proprietary medicines offered for sale in Ireland were of English origin. But the mystique attached to exotic-sounding nostrums and the high standing which eminent in- European medics like Hermann Bohr have were held, encouraged medical entrepreneurs to seek out others on the continent. Significantly, as in England, few of those appealed to in Ireland originated in France. And it is notable that none of the major works on dentistry by Fauchard, Giraudie, Bounon, Mouton, Recluse, Bourdais, and Jourdan were published in Dublin during the course of the 18th century. This may, as Jones has suggested, have resulted from the suspicion with which France was regarded within the elite, since other European nationalities eh, fared better. Thus, Bartholomew Ruspini, an Italian surgeon and licentiate of the great medical college and hospital of Bergamo, who visited Dublin in 1753, offered a dental cure-all made known to him at the said college, or so he claimed. However, print was a still more reliable source of new ideas, and it is notable that the fourth edition of the German physician Frederick Hoffmann's work, A Treatise on the Teeth, Their Nature, Structure, Formation, Beauty, Connection and Use, was published in Dublin in 1760. 
with the important section on the disorders to which teeth were subject and Hoffman's uh, remedies. This hardly made up for the neglect of Fauchard, or indeed of John Hunter's Seminal Natural History of Human Teeth, published in London in 1771, which is now acknowledged as an important step in the rise of surgery from manual craft to scientific discipline. Though it may be the case, based on the presence of two, in the, uh, two copies of the first edition in Irish libraries, that it did indeed have Irish readers. Be that as it may, most of the small number of dental texts published in Dublin were of English origin, usually by individuals now regarded as academic lightweights. The most notable was Thomas Birdmore, who wrote his treatise on, on the origins of the formulas of the teeth and gums, which came illustrated with cases and experiments attended for, several, a, attended for general use, was published in a Dublin edition in 1769. Though the amount of print devoted to its promotion was modest, it was still significant, and it attests to the interest in, in improving the standard of dental care identifiable in the 1760s and uh, 1770s. It was encouraged, moreover, by a, an increase in cosmetic dentistry. That was a, there was a feature of the rage for cosmetic enhancement then current, which suggests in turn that Irish consumers were not in touch by the French desire to make the mouth, quote, a pleasing feature of the human body. All manner of cosmetic and medical preparations were marketed in order to enhance the aesthetic allure of the wearer, and since pearly white teeth were as, as esteemed as a blemish-free complexion as part of this uh, attitude, and extravagant hair, and the hair was extravagant, dentists were as eager as the retailers of commercial medicine to profit from this fashion. There you are, I thought cosmetic dentistry whatever, was a modern phenomenon or part of Hollywood. Uh, this was highlighted by the inclusion in a tract published in 1777 for the guidance of young ladies of a section on, quote, opiates for preserving and whitening the teeth. As mad as using mercury for a venereal disease. Uh, few products were offered for sale solely with this purpose in mind. The essence of pearl and pearl dentrice developed by Jacob Hemet, the dentist to Queen Charlotte and Princess Amelia, was marketed in traditional terms as a preventative of toothache and tooth decay, but also as a cure for scurvy of the gums, a sweetener, and a sweetener of the breath. But the telltale mark pointer to the market at which he was primarily targeting is provided by the prioritization of his capacity to quote, sorry, priority of his, his capacity quote, to render teeth white and beautiful. Similar claims were advanced in respect of the tincture and dentifrice sold by Henry Hart, a dentist based in Crow Street, and the current retailing of Thomas Greenough's celebrated and long-established tinctures. A positive consequence of the desire for white teeth that one can identify from the 1770s was a greater receptivity to new dental products. This dovetailed with a surge in the consumption of proprietary medicine generally, which peregrinating quacks like the famous Mrs. Bernard from Berlin, as she was described, were quick to cash in on. But it also served as a stimulus to local dental surgeons and encouraged ambitious itinerant practitioners not just to include Dublin on their itinerary, but also to demonstrate new techniques and skills. The most notable was Mr. Daviaf, I don't know his forename, who subsequently teamed up with Mrs. Bernard, who visited Ireland in 1782. Davy was an experienced and adept self-publicist in the tradition of the most successful itinerant quacks of the age, but he was also a skillful dentist who advertised his ability to transplant teeth and to, quote, fix artificial teeth from one to a whole set by a new and safe method without the least pain, 
much preferable to any other mood ever before invented. End of quotation. This claim was not of precedent in Ireland. Henry Hart had made it known some years earlier that he, quote, makes and fixes from one to a complete set, uh, set of artificial teeth, reinstates natural teeth, and performs other complex procedures. But he did so in such a low-key manner as not to encourage confidence in his skills or abilities. Nonetheless, it is apparent that the techniques of those practising dentistry in Dublin it did attract paying customers. Thus, the Dublin, the Dublin businessman Daniel Geel in 1779 paid Edward Hudson, who was one of two dentists listed in the directory of the city for that year, one pound, two shillings and ninepence for a false tooth, and the still more imposing sum of six pounds, 16 shillings and sixpence, six years later for unspecified at work. It was the practice also by the 1780s for groups of rural gentry to travel to Dublin in a, quote, a teeth-cleaning party, in other words, medical tourism. They may not have had an enormous number of practitioners from which to choose, and they didn't, but the fact that they made the journey with this purpose in mind attests to the emergence, many decades after it had taken place in France, of dentistry, dentistry as a distinct and recognised branch of medicine. Saliently, it was during the 1770s that the term dentist placed surgeon and operator for the teeth as the appellation of choice of those, who appurge, of those who pursued this branch of medicine in Ireland and as a measure of the spread of its adoption that both Edward Hudson and John Crampton, who had offices in William Street, were described as dentists in the trade directories of the late 1770s. Indicatively, practitioners like Davy and Hart did not conceal their concern at the damage caused to tooth enamel by, quote, the frequent use of instruments and particular powders, end of quote, that were resorted to to correct discoloration and to whiten teeth. Yet the practical reality for those who sought personally to care for their teeth was that their choice of dental powders was limited. The runaway market leader remained Greenoff's tincture, which was stocked by all of the new generation of ambitious medical retailers that emerged in the 1770s and 1780s. A number maintained to possess the exclusive sale rights, but it could be purchased readily from James Hoey, John McGee, Michael Mills, William Wilson, William Bate, Robert Marchbanks, Bilbrey and Dagnan, and others indeed, for anything from between one shilling and threepence to one shilling and sevenpence a bottle during the 70s, 80s and 1790s. It had competitors in Hemet's Essence of Pearl, and Pearl Dentifrice, Hamilton's Tincture, Erlo's, pincture, Erlo's Pill and Tincture for the Toothache. But since they were on average more than twice the cost, they were at an obvious disadvantage in the marketplace. The most expensive tooth powder of all was produced by Chevalier Bartholomew Ruspini, died in 1813, who achieved renown in London as the author of a treatise on the teeth, and more significantly as the surgeon dentist to the Prince of Wales, in the interval since we last encountered him as a visitor to Dublin in 1753. He attracted further notice in the late 1780s, 1780s as the creator of a styptic solution that it was claimed had, quote, the most salutary effects, both internal and external, in all hemorrhages. But his most lucrative nostrums were a tincture and a dentifrice, which were applied with a sponge and a brush, and which retailed at eight shillings, one and a half pence in Ireland in the 1790s, a really quite extraordinary sum. Because of the cost of Ruspini's medications and the hyperbole in which he extolled their merits, satirists and caricaturists mocked him mercilessly. 
This is more obvious in London, at least, because we know more about the, uh, the, the uh, caricature uh, world of London than we do of Ireland. But the perception that he and others like him were motivated solely by greed encouraged scepticism in many quarters. And this was reinforced by the knowledge that claims by dentists to possess, quote, a cure for the madness, the toothache, gum disease, and tooth decay were obviously manifestly uh, misleading. As a consequence, even skillful dental practitioners such as James Law, who trained under, quote, the celebrated William Ray in London before he fixed his plate at Andrew Street in Dublin in the early 1790s, were singled out. To be sure, Law's claims that he could manufacture new gums and palates in a manner not to be distinguished from real nature, as well as fixed dentures, were imprudent the way he was, as events were to show, a talented dentist. Saliently, such criticism had little obvious negative impact on a commercial medical culture in which hyperbole and exaggeration were an ingrained feature of the, of the sales language. In any event, it, sought not to obscure, sorry, it ought not to obscure the fact that by the early 1790s, as one contemporary noted, the profession of dentist is becoming very common in the city. This was to exaggerate, but the number of individuals known as dentists with permanent practice in the city rose from two in the late 1770s to four in the mid-1780s, and it had doubled again, doubled again to eight by, this, by 1798. Significantly, though, Dublin was the only location with enough business to allow dentists to set up permanent practices. Belfast, by contrast, was wholly dependent for most of the 1790s on itinerant practitioners from Dublin, Edinburgh, and London who chose generally not to spend more than a fortnight or three weeks in the city en route to some other location. The situation was comparable in Cork, Drogheda and Clonmel. And it has to be assumed in most other towns, though Limerick seems to have had a resident surgeon dentist in 1790. As a result, even those elements of the population who could afford dental welfare had no option but to attend whichever itinerant quack came along or the local tooth puller, eh, which could prove highly problematic. The case of James Bladen Rospini, the son and partner of the celebrated Chevalier of the same surname, is instructive in this respect. Having arrived in Dublin in January 1794 to market the celebrated dentifrice that made his father a lot of money, Rospini opened a warehouse to meet demand in the capital before setting out for Cork, where his aggressive sale practices, he initiated prosecutions against eight shopkeepers for daring to vend a spurious kind of soup, a spurious kind of tooth powder in imitation of his own, and high prices embroiled him in a price war with the main local medical retailer and obliged him to focus his efforts on, quote, the nobility and gentry of the city and its vicinity. This was hardly ideal, but it is illustrative of the fact that by the end of the 18th century, dentistry was firmly, still firmly located in a medical culture in which irregulars were a powerful, perhaps even a, a dominant presence. To conclude, then, the 18th century witnessed the first steps toward the development of a distinct dental medical specialism in Ireland. Institutionally, this was part of the process that prompted the major reorganisation of the various medical interests that were long embraced within the guild of barbers, surgeons, apothecaries and peruke makers. A turning point was reached with the withdrawal in 1745 of the apothecaries to form their own guild, and though surgeons remained formally apart and continued to be admitted to membership, they chose increasingly to absent themselves. From, for them, the foundation in 1784 of the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland represented a more appropriate educational and institutional home. Meanwhile, separate from but parallel with these developments, dentistry slowly forged an identity 
the combined features of the various medical cultures of the age. Dental practitioners in 18th century Ireland were responsible for their own training. This did not lend itself to a high standard of dental care, but it was still possible for the reflective practitioner to acquire an understanding of the biology of dental development and the techniques of dental welfare well in advance of that of his predecessors by combining what he learned as an apprentice with the new ideas that were transmitted via this fitful stream of publications devoted to dentistry and occasional visiting practitioner from abroad. All the evidence available is apparent at the ter- that it is apparent the adoption of the term dentist notwithstanding that in Ireland as in England there was considerable resistance to the embrace of the advanced ideas developed in France and that the predisposition to extract vividly encapsulated in the term tooth puller and operator for the teeth proved enduring. At the same time, most practitioners were profoundly influenced in the manner in which they conducted themselves by the burgeoning culture of commercial medicine. This point needs to be made because of the reflective tendency to dismiss commercial medicine as mere quackery and to overlook the fact that as well as the manufacture and sale of of a variety of dental tinctures, pastes and dentifrices, it also promoted a method of operating that involved advertising and the sale of proprietary medications that many dental practitioners uh, also pursued. Much of what passed for reliable medication in the 18th century may well have been ineffective, but it is improbable that all was, e- all was equally valueless. Moreover, this c- conclusion can be asserted with respect to dental problems with some confidence, for while great pain could be inflicted and serious damage done in drawing a tooth badly, it was still less serious than the consequences of ignoring in de- dental infection, which could be fatal. Indeed, it may be that the decline of the number whose death was ascribed to teeth in the Dublin Bills of Mortality between the 17-teens and the 1730s is not unconnected to the activities of dentists like Samuel Steele and Thomas, a- and Thomas Allen or to the improved availability of, of dental washes and dental freezes. Yet the situation might have been still better if Ireland had attached more emphasis to training and qualification and been more receptive to the advanced dental techniques and procedures pioneered in France. As it was, at least among those engaged in dental medicine in Ireland, there was some openness in the second half of the 18th century to new ideas, which were conveyed through Irish editions of mainly safe <coughs> English texts and a steady flow of English dental, uh, 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 sorry, English itinerant dental practitioners. It is thus not surprising the situation in Ireland at the end of the 18th century be compared with that in provincial England, which long sustained a network of itinerant dentists. This was the case certainly in Ireland in the early 19th century. The situation is, is less clear-cut, probably, be, probably because the provision of, uh, was more uneven for the 18th century. What is apparent is that dentistry then was a mobile and competitive profession. This acted as a stimulus to dentists to improve the services they offered, as the criticisms directed at those who used amalgams of lead and quicksilver or tin foil instead of virgin gold to fill teeth in the 1820s indicates. Yet for all that, it is salutary to note that the patient's experience of the dentist in the early 19th century was little different to that of the inefficient tooth puller in the, in the 18th century. When James Pedlow, who lived near Portadown, County Armagh, had a tooth removed in 1834, his experience was comparable to that of William French, 83 years, years earlier. He was obliged to endure three months' suffering because the person who undertook the task tore his jaw so badly it bled for two months. Thank you.